Hi, I'm Lanise Brothers, a registered nutritionist, women's health, hormone, and menstrual cycle coach, and the founder of Eat Love Move, a nutrition and well-being practice. This is the Period Story Podcast, where in each episode, I sit down with a guest to talk about their period story. We get behind some of the myths and misconceptions about periods and so much more. Now, on to today's guest. On today's episode, we have Amy Peak. Amy founded her charity, Loving Humanity, in 2014 with the aim of helping women in war zones by alleviating the health problems associated with the lack of good quality and affordable sanitary pads. Since then, her work has helped to restore dignity and create social uplift for thousands of women in some of the most war-ravaged parts of the world, and crucially, allowed thousands of menstruating girls who would not normally have access to school to receive an education. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. Um, So this is a question I start each episode off with, the story of your first period. Can you share with us what happened? Yes. Um, I was 12 and I was on holiday with my best friend and... I just remember going to the loo and pulling down my pants and seeing a brown stain thinking, oh my gosh, this is the beginning. And um, was sort of mildly panicked because I was no, nowhere near my own mother at the time. And, um, and, and I had to, you know, that embarrassing moment of um, having to go and speak to her mother. Or I got her, I think, to go and speak to her mother. And she gave me the most enormous sanitary pad you've ever seen in your life. And I sort of had to waddle around with this like table between my legs. Um, and I had to ring my mum and dad and tell them. It was just, um, you know, one of those moments in life you never forget. And well, how did your, your parents react when you phoned them and told them? Uh, mum was sweet. She was like, oh, that's such great news. But that was about it. It wasn't sort of anything greater than that. And then I had this awful, mild panic of, oh, my God, she's going to tell my dad. And as much as I loved my dad, I felt very private about my body and I immediately rang her back and said please don't tell dad because I feel so embarrassed and of course she she went well I've already told him (laughs) (laughs) so I kind of died thinking oh my god everybody knows about my body and um yeah that was that was it that was my memory really it was kind of like excitement and 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 joy to have kind of joined the rest of my friends who'd already started menstruating and at the same time that sort of sudden realization of embarrassment and um not wanting anybody to know and having to sort of talk about big girl stuff and when you're still quite small and so had you already known about periods did you have any education about what was what was to come when you got your first period um yes I I had two brothers I didn't have a sister which didn't make it any easier but I was actually at a girls boarding school so by the time I got my period, lots of my friends had already got theirs. So it kind of made it easier. And there was this kind of, you know, a, a bit of mystery around pads and tampons and stuff like that, that I kind of wanted to join in with, I suppose. So I knew what was coming. Um, and it wasn't so, I mean, I think I'm, I'm sure I had biology lessons around it, but it was more from just being with friends. And so you got your first period and you were, you were at, you were on holiday and then yeah. when you go went back to boarding school did you feel like you were quite part of the club now 
Totally. Yeah. yeah. Like I was one of the gang and I'd grown up and, you know, <laughs> but, yeah, but I think it is my, my middle daughter has, um, you know, just got her period and it, and it is that whole thing of, um, wanting to be part of something when everybody else is doing it, you want to be, especially when you're young. And I forget that now, but you know, yes, definitely. If you think back to when you got your period and how much you knew, do you feel like your daughters are in a different place? Yes. I mean, they have so much uh, better education now. I think they, they call it PSHE. And, yeah. you know, they, 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 they sort of learn about stuff that I learn about now. And I'm like, really? You're learning about that? <laughs> and it sort of slightly shocks me. Um, and I sort of think they're innocent. And then I realize that they're absolutely not. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, the, I think life's just changed so much. I mean, I was talking about this with my husband the other day. In the last, four, I'm going to be 46 in a couple of weeks. And I mean, in the last 40 years, since we were kids, I mean, you know, the internet, you know, we didn't, we had calculators, but they were, you know, they were relatively kind of new things and they, they were quite cool and expensive still and those things. So, you know, to go from that stage to having the internet and being able to Google and find out anything is just quite extraordinary. So when you got, when you got your period and that, that education that you had, going back to school and being part of this club, did you feel equipped to deal with any issues that may have come up? So painful periods or heavy periods? I didn't. It's difficult, isn't it? You don't know how you're going to be before you get it. I, I was, um, I was, uh, we had a, like a medical center we could go to or house mistresses. Um, I too had incredibly painful periods and eventually at the age of, I think 17, they put me on a massive great painkiller called Potsdam or something. And, um, and then quite soon after that, they put me on the pill. And yeah, it, 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 knowing what I know now, it wasn't great. They weren't great choices. They, they, they weren't the, the best solutions, but, but that's what was available. And there were people there to help, definitely. So what, when when you say knowing what you know now, it wasn't the best solution. What do you what do you mean by that? Well, it's actually this is only my second month of coming off the pill. I mean, I've had three children, so I obviously came off the pill to do those things. But I, I started not feeling particularly well, or something was off, and realized that I didn't have. You know, that th- there must be, I know what, it was my daughters. They started getting really bad period pains. They were saying, mom, can I go on the pill? And they're like 15, 16. I'm like, no, there has to be a better way. And when I was in my 20s, I, I love learning. So I literally remember going to the library in Putney going, there have to be books out here to explain how I can manage pain without going on the pill. There was not one book. And I, I felt so sort of uh, surprised that there was such a massive lack of knowledge. And then um, I found an acupuncturist in Bath where I live and this gorgeous person said, oh, well, have you read this book and this is what you need? So the girls and I have all had acupuncture, which has helped enormously. And then I read um, oh, Period Repair Manual. Yeah, that's uh, a great book. Amazing book. I mean, I'm, li- I'm reading all of this stuff around 
magnesium and zinc and turmeric and B6 and all this stuff. And I used to take B6 and evening primrose. But I, I swear last month I had a period without any period pain. I nearly fell off my chair. I was like, why did someone not tell me this 20 years ago? And that's what I mean when, you know, what I know now. I would not have gone on the pill at the age of, <clears throat> excuse me, 17 if I'd known that I was just short of a few things. And I was a hugely, uh, I played hockey all the time. So my body was probably dying for magnesium. And, um, you know, I, all as much as I was on B6, I wasn't on zinc, I wasn't on turmeric, I wasn't, I just wasn't aware that my body was lacking stuff and there was a way of healing it without taking Western medicine. So, I mean, I feel like I've sort of woken up into a new world at the age of 46, just before I go into my menopause, which is great. <laughs> but <laughs> better was, late than never. Was this two, two months ago you went to see the acupuncturist and, you went, and then came off the pill? Yeah. I mean, literally, it's all just happening now. Oh, wow. And what's really exciting for me, it's like I wanted to experience Amy without steroids in my body and the fact that when we're on the pill we don't actually bleed I, I was on a pill that allowed me to have a withdrawal bleed but we don't actually ovulate we don't have those 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 the, you know the natural I, I did have a cycle it was definitely something that I could still feel but it wasn't properly me and I wanted to know me before I became older <clears throat> and, and that is fascinating what have you Sorry. discovered about yourself uh I like myself more. <laughs> I, don't, I don't suffer um, horrendous sugar cravings I used to get when I came off the pill or as I was literally coming off the pill ready to bleed. I just crave sugar like nobody's business. And I don't have that. I thought I was some monster. And I realized that it was all just induced by hormones and whatever, you know, false stuff. And I, I, I'm a massive believer in healing and education. And Therefore, to be in this age and then not be better solutions, you know, is beyond me. But there are, as it turns out. But the other thing um, which I am really passionate about, I, what was I going to say? Oh, my goodness. So we're, where we are now, I find fascinating and sad in that we're in a very male-dominated or not male, just a, a masculine energy. This isn't about men and women. It's a very masculine energy, very patriarchal society we're living in. And women, we expect ourselves to be able to keep up with that same energy as men all the time. And so um, what, I, what I'm really learning by coming off the pill and by practicing menstrual cycle awareness is that if we can allow this feminine energy to rise... And for the world to realize that we work in cycles, not at 100 miles an hour all the time, that I, I think that when that happens in the world, which won't be for a while, but when it does happen, I think that the world will come back into balance and that we will actually have a healing of the planet and a transformation, which we don't currently have or even perceive that we could possibly have apart from a few people who are a little bit more enlightened. But I think that's what's wrong. I think that's what's missing is that this feminine energy isn't even allowed to rise because women don't know that we have it. We just sit on it going, gosh, we've got a period. How annoying. I feel dreadful, blah, blah, blah. Instead of going, oh, oh thank goodness, I'm going to go off into my little cave and snuggle myself and stay under my duvet and nurture myself and be in touch with the divine and then come out again. And that's where the magic is. And we're missing it. Yeah. You know, we're, for me, we're missing. We're missing and denying ourselves the power of the feminine. That's, that's what I'm really loving learning about and realize that in learning about myself more that 
that that's what's that that's the missing ingredient in the planet in the world how we're functioning and you've had all of these realizations in the last two months <laughs> no, no 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 i just think it's amazing yeah, that uh, you've discovered it so well, quickly no well um not so much the last two months as in around the feminine energy rising definitely around the education of the vitamins and minerals that i can take to support myself more than i had been um but the I, I suppose, I mean, given what I do, I'm a massive champion of women and, and equality. Um, but I suppose more than that reading, I've also just read Wild Power, which is a phenomenal book. Um, I, I think coupled with, with learning that there are other women out there who have been studying this stuff and have written such eloquent books um, kind of goes hand in hand with what I do, which is for goodness sake, let's lift women up globally. And so to get that I'm not actually mad now on a limb completely by myself and that there are actually millions of women <laughs> who believe the same thing. I'm like, Oh, thank goodness. I'm quite normal. Do you know, it, it, it's, it's something around that. And I think it's just coming together, but the, yes, over the last two months, there's been this huge focusing of that and the focus of goodness me, if women didn't deny ourselves our cycles and if the whole culture was revolved around acknowledging women and the power and the wisdom that come through menstruating, I mean, crikey, the world would be a different place. All of the, the realizations that you've had and the learning that you've had around the menstrual cycle awareness and energy, have you passed that on to your daughters and are they kind of trying to, live that way as well well um the middle one who's completely um has to have everything really beautiful i just put the so we have um we have a a circle you know with a a cut up to 30 days and we have to fill in every day how we feel and so we can get a, a, a this feeling of the winter and the spring and the summer and the autumn and that sort of thing and um she, she she likes it to be so beautiful. And so she hasn't put a, enough time aside for it to be beautiful enough. So I'm just putting it in front of her and doing it. The older one just doesn't want to know. She thinks I'm completely cuckoo and I should get back in my box. <laughs> but, but I'm working on it, but I'm working on it. Having said that, when I took them both to the acupuncturist, you know, when you start understanding that there's another world of healing and, and transformation and empowerment, all of that stuff that's out there, you know, Lily, who's 16, was listening with kind of open ears going, oh, my gosh, she said, Mom, I didn't know you knew this stuff. And I'm like, well, yeah, <laughs> I'm 46, nearly, I know some stuff. And I think it was exciting for her and mind-opening, you know, to, to hear about a different way of looking after yourself and that energy exists and it's not just put a pill in your mouth and the, the problem will go away. It's how do we best live with ourselves and evolve? And, and that was really exciting to share with her, really exciting. And what sort of changes have you made to the way that you eat um, in order to facilitate all of the, the coming off of the pill and the reduction of um, the period pains? Well, this one's been a bit of a, um, a kind of a struggle for the last 20 odd years. I used to be um, a personal trainer and a Pilates teacher. So very early on, I understood that I couldn't really drink alcohol and get up at very early in the morning and run with people so that was just like tough but as I got older and sort of um supposedly grown up and you go out to dinner parties or you go and go out with your friends I just realized and I learned the hard way that alcohol kills me 
and it makes my cycle worse. It sends me on a binging cycle of eating loads of bad food. And so since January, I haven't had a drop of alcohol. I didn't drink that much anyway, but it was kind of like, how can I live my best life? And it would be definitely without alcohol. And equally, I have the same relationship with sugar. So I really try not to eat it. Um, when I do, I'm afraid it's my Achilles heel. It's just like my drug. So I try not to get there. And when I do, I just forgive myself for, you know, going off around the mountains and up and down the hills. <laughs> I find myself again and go, Ava, what are you doing? Um, but yeah, so I, 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 the other thing that's happened, which is really funny and amazing, is that my middle daughter, Amber, has just declared that she's vegan. She watched um, some of these, you know, one, one of these films about animal treatment, just went, that's it, never again. And she was a complete chicken fajita fan. So for this girl to say she's going vegan is like almost like an earthquake. And um, so as a result, we, we've all just embraced cooking vegan food. And so we just live on a huge amount of vegetables and pulses and all the really, really good stuff. And we're all feeling amazing. And even my husband, um, who's longing for that kind of food as well, has embraced it. I mean, not totally. And the, I have a third daughter and she still eats meat. But um, So yeah, I, I really am totally aware of how food in my body either makes it or breaks it every month without question. You, you, you've learned so much like, and you've done so much in the past. And, and like, we're, not, we're only in April. It's hard to think like we're only in April. It feels like so much in like globally has happened in 2020 already. Um, and you've had so many amazing changes happen to you. Um, it's You have three daughters and they're kind of slowly learning this stuff in their own way. Some are embracing it, some aren't. Um, I wonder how that, how does this trend, all of this translate into the work that you do? So your charity, can you talk a little bit about the charity and then um, perhaps how all of the learning that you've done have, has changed the work that you've done or changed maybe any perspective on your work? Wow. So in a nutshell, if I talk about loving humanity, so everybody understands, um, in 2014, I was sitting in my doctor's surgery and saw the most horrific photograph of 18,000 people queuing for bread in Damascus. And um, in the foreground of, a, of the picture was a woman. And I thought, oh, my goodness me, what if that was me? And how do women cope being mothers, carers, women in war zones? I mean, how do you cope? In this picture, the street was completely bombed out. There were no shops. I mean, I mean after you've had a baby, you've just got to know where the nearest toilet is. And I was like, oh my God, when I go to the loo? You know, it was kind of basic. And that's when I started on this journey of trying to import a low-cost sanitary towel machine from India into Jordan. And we set up a sanitary pad factory and a washable nappy factory in the camp because I learned about a huge uh, problem of incontinence with traumatized kids um, who were bedwetting. So we set up this factory, we employed 30 of the most vulnerable women in the camp, and it was absolutely the most incredible thing ever and really inspiring for me to be so uplifted by women who had lost everything and to see how they coped with life. And, you know, I always think these things are going to last forever. And as it turned out, due to politics, we had to close that factory and move out to the capital city, Amman. And now we have a factory there that makes washable nappies. And basically we make them for the newborns, but, but also primarily for people suffering, suffering with disability and or old age. 
and we we employ eight Iraqis who fled from Mosul from ISIS and um, and we also in the meantime developed our own machine because the Indian solution wasn't quite an off the peg solution and we set up our first factory with partners in Kibera, the largest slum in Nairobi. And there we now, um, our partners give away the pads there for free and they help about a thousand girls every month to stay in school. Um, And it's, you know, I'm constantly amazed and uplifted by meeting these incredible people who have nothing. And, you know, here we have everything and not very much spiritually or, you know, on on another level. So how does all of the, how does, how does menstruation, my learning affect my work now? Um, I think I feel even more passionate about helping women to stay in education. I, I don't see how this transformation, this shift can happen on our planet until women are educated. And it is so shocking to me that um, these poor girls and women are unable to just go to school. And, and part of that problem is the lack of access to, 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 to pads. Um, and on top of that, they have their domestic chores that they have to be kept at home with. Their whole culture is different. But to, to have that, um, that not right, it is a right, to have that right taken away from you, to have the, the possibility or that potential taken away from you as a young person. I mean, UNICEF apparently wrote an article saying that 65% of girls in Kenya traded sex for pads. And someone called them on it saying, well, can you prove that? And they went, no, we can't prove that. So they said, well, actually 10%. But the point is that there's a huge practice in trading sex for sanitary pads in the slums and in poor cultures. And that's just unacceptable. And so when I have the good grace to recognize how unbelievably fortunate I am and to have all this knowledge at my fingertips and the money to then act on it, I just, um, you know, it makes my heart bleed that other people, other girls, other women, even in my own country, other, you know, can't access or, or have this opportunity to learn and to grow. And, and that's where the planet's going to change. So I feel more passionate about what I do because I want more girls and more women to rise up and to realize their power and for men to recognize it in their societies and in our society. I mean, even now we don't have equal pay. And I work with a fabulous woman who's constantly quoting invisible women saying, well, you know, women aren't recognized in data collection. So how on earth can we have a world that's designed for us? So, um, yeah, I, I feel more passionate as time goes by about helping and lifting up more women. What countries do you operate in? You mentioned Jordan, you mentioned Kenya. Kenya. So we're in Jordan and Kenya right now. Um, we have a factory which is just, is just crossing the Iraqi border now. And we're going into um, an internally displaced camp in Iraq where there are 5,000 people. And currently there's no distribution of pads. So we're doing a project there with Oxfam. And um, so that's our, basically I was due to go to, to Iraq at the end of March, but because of the virus, that all stopped. Um, we've also got um, uh, work in Uganda and Zimbabwe, but we're really working on trying to make connections with governments to facilitate tax exemptions because as soon as we have to pay tax, then it starts making the whole thing financially un- not viable and tricky. So when you started 
it, the project in in these countries, have you had to overcome any cultural assumptions or barriers regarding the importance of menstruation and the importance of getting the sanitary products to these women? That's a good question. The answer is no. It's really strange. In the Middle East, um, you know, men and women are very separate and they live their lives very separately. Um, you know, even at, even at weddings, women dance together and, and the men aren't there and the men are elsewhere. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very unusual society for us, a very unusual culture for us. And even though there's a lot of shame around menstruation and or shame as in it's not talked about when I, when I mean that, when I say that, um, there is a massive recognition by men that women menstruate and men know that it exists. And actually, they facilitated the opening of the factory in the refugee camp because the men were in charge. The fact that they had a white, a white British woman walking around saying, I want to open a sanitary pad factory. They just went, oh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> they, they were amazing. The men, the, the men were amazing. Um, and I suppose that when I come along and say, well, you know, this is an issue and we need to sort this out. They go, yeah, of course we do. Um, and since working in Jordan, um, United Nations High Commission for Refugees, who, who run the camp and who I worked with, um, they then started going on courses around menstruation. You know, so it's kind of like just from a little beginning, lots of things happen. And the same in Kenya, you know, everybody knows it happens. The fact that it's not on the curriculum, but it's against the law to talk about it, I think, even in schools. You know, I mean, it's kind of crazy. It's like, how can that not be on the curriculum? Um, that everybody knows what goes on. Um, no one's ever blocked it. And now we're talking with the uh, Ministry of Health in Kenya. They support our work and we've just partnered with Wash Alliance Kenya. And these are men. You know, these aren't, these aren't women. These are men. And they're... they're 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 wonderful they're doing great great work um so it has to be recognized a lot a lot of the time women presume that men are a a uh, an obstacle in this journey and it's so not the case it's very very touching that men want to provide for women um the fact that it's not talked about and and culturally not accepted is a different is a different thing um so i've been very uh, uplifted by the support that i've had um Obviously, it would be, you know, I, I wouldn't be doing what I do if it wasn't a problem and if it, if it you know, if it wasn't already, if it wasn't accepted. So it, it's kind of a weird one, but it's kind of like everybody knows what's going on. No one's just talking about it. Hmm. And are the pads that you make, are they uh, reusable or are they disposable pads? Well, in um, Jordan um, and in Kenya, when, when we started, they're disposable because in certain uh, situations, there's such a massive lack of privacy that a woman would never hang up a pad to dry. She would rather die herself than go, oh my goodness, I menstruate. You know, they just wouldn't do that. So we did research doing washable pads in the camp and women just went, we won't use them. And um, the same in the slum. But having said that, now that the nappy factory moved out of the refugee camp in Jordan into the city, there's a lot of research saying that 19 out of 20 women would use washable pads because they have more privacy and they also have running water. You know, in the slum, they don't even have water to drink, so clean water to drink. So, you know, to, to, to use water to wash something is sort of a luxury. 
really, you know, which is why the, the virus is pro- posing such a problem in the slum and people are desperately trying to set up hand-washing um, stations and stuff like this. So, you know, it, it's, it's very difficult and it's something that I find quite challenging when I talk to people or when people ask me, actually, sometimes quite aggressively, why aren't your products more environmentally friendly or sustainable? And the answer is because some situations it just isn't appropriate. Or when you have millions and millions and millions of girls needing help, you would have to produce millions and millions of washable pads at great expense and distribute those. Um, so, so really my aim is to, first of all, get pads on girls, get them into school, let's educate everybody, and let's find some fabulous solutions to solve the problems that we're also creating at the same time environmentally in the world and the, and the way that we live. Um, it is. I do. I do have quite um, staggering conversations with usually uh, white middle class women saying, "Well, that's absolutely appalling. You know, how can you put something else into the environment which is going to make it worse?" And you're like, "Well, are you saying that these poor girls shouldn't have access to education because that's what you're saying? There isn't really another alternative which is suitable. I mean, a moon cup, for instance, you know, sounds great, and for a lot of girls, they're very uncomfortable, difficult to insert. Not they just too much for the mental stage of development and also when you go to the toilets in the slum which are very far and few between you know in the school that I visited there's a hundred kids using three toilets and there's a pile of poo in each toilet and they flush it with a bucket of water three times a day well if you were to take a cup out and empty blood onto that I mean you just would not you just wouldn't do it and so you know some of the solutions that we have in our culture and our society are fabulous but we have to remember that when we're working in places where there's no running water, where there's no privacy, you know, then we have to alter what's, what's, um, what's possible. Having said that, ha- having said that, um, when we, um, hopefully at one stage someone's going to drop a huge pile of gold in our lap, we can actually turn our raw materials over to biodegradable ones. And we're doing a costing exercise at the moment to do that, but it will cost about three times as much to produce a, a, a more positive pad than it would do to the one that we have now. So again, it's a financial thing. And it's because the commercial industry in, 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 our, in our world hasn't gone over that tipping point of um, women absolutely insisting that what we buy is biodegradable. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about some of the success stories that have come out of the incredible work that you're doing? gosh well on the on the face of it like just the top line you know a thousand girls a month are being helped in the slum now which is fabulous um in jordan last year we made and distributed over four thousand nappies so the top line is that um you know the work's getting done. Eventually, we're really having the impact we want. We, as a result of the factory in the in the slum, employ five women. In Jordan, we employ eight women. So not only are we helping people with the product, we're giving jobs. And, and for the people who we give jobs to, they're able to support their families better. So it, it, it sort of is on many levels. On the top line, when I started this, I didn't think that, I, I had no perception that um, our work would help people Financially. So on the top line, we're distributing products, we're creating jobs. I was just saying that I didn't um, have any idea that, that what 
I set out to do would impact people financially. Like it just hadn't got there for me. When we left the refugee camp, the Norwegian Refugee Council, who we were working with, um, did a monitoring and an evaluation report. And the people who received and used our nappies saved 25% of their monthly income, which is huge. Wow. Absolutely yeah. huge. So I, I had no idea that, that that would happen. So that was exciting. I mean, you know, 25% is a huge amount of money, isn't it? Um, and, then, and then on the, the other level, the success for me is in the small things that happen. And I suppose in the camp, one of the, one of the lovely things that happened is that in a refugee camp, there's some, maybe some kind of presumption that people will just kind of know each other. And that's not the case, obviously. And one, of, one day I was working in the factory with the women and I said to them, do you see each other outside of work? generally all been abused by them so um they're very vulnerable and they said yeah you know actually every Saturday now we get together in each other's tent and we have a coffee and you know we've become each other's support network and I'm like oh how amazing and how touching and um then at another moment um I was working in the church after we after we moved out of the camp we are in the compound of a church now and the women in the refugee camp were Muslim and, the, and from Syria and the women in the church where we work are from Iraq and they're Christian. So it was fascinating for me to work with two Middle Eastern cultures, but one be Muslim and one be Christian. And the Muslim ladies were terrified of coming down to the church saying, Amy, I can't go into the church. It's, it's, it's against my beliefs. I'm really terrified. I said, darling, don't worry. I'll look after you. The, the factory is just in a room next door to the church. You don't have to go into the church. Everything will be fine. And so they come down and we have the Christians and the Muslims working together and these women and, and they were being really funny going, oh, I'm better so than her. She's, you know, she's not very good. I'm better. And, you know, 10 minutes later, they're like best mates making nappies and it's all peace and love. And then it gets to lunchtime and I suddenly realize that I'm supposed to provide lunch because nobody else is there and whatever. So I go out with um, my interpreter and we go and buy some chicken and rice and come back to the church and there's a cutting table which hasn't quite made it into the factory sitting in the middle of this compound this church compound and so there we are there's about 10 of us standing around this table and one of the ladies lifting up her hijab and eating her chicken and rice very gracefully and another of the ladies who's christian turns around to me and she says amy isn't it crazy that you have to come all the way from the uk to make us friends and you're like, oh, I think I'm, you know, cry, ready to go home now. The whole point is that we're the same and we get so confused by what we look like or by what we believe. And to have a little magical moment of some people realizing in the midst of war, I mean, the interpreter who works for us, his brother was shot by a Muslim in Iraq because he had a, a cross hanging from his car mirror. You know, he literally walked up the car, car window and shot him. And so these are people who've experienced such enormous loss and tragedy and war. So for me to say, oh, the Christian and Muslim making friends, isn't that lovely? I'm like, it's amazing when people can set aside what they've lost to see the humanity in each other. And that's just so wonderful and so sad that we can't see that automatically in each other immediately. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Can you talk a, a little bit about what's coming up? I know everything is on hold at the moment because of coronavirus, but post-corona, 
talk about what's coming up next for you. Any, uh, you said you're expanding into Zimbabwe and Uganda. Um, what what the plan? What your plans are? If you can share any of that. Yeah. So um, the first thing will be well, I'll go to Iraq to set up the factory there. Um, the 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 thing that's going to happen at the same time as that is that we're shipping um, three factories to Kenya. Uh, actually, two. I beg your pardon. Um, one of them is going to a project north of Nairobi, where this amazing Englishman called David Baldwin looks after um, a parish or supports a parish, and he, you know, the organisation that he he runs feeds fifteen hundred kids a day, and they've set up the most amazing. Um, project a residential project for girls to go off um, and spend time for a week with each other instead of being cut um and he, he does amazing work and we've we really struggled to get tax exemptions into kenya but now we're working alongside the government it's all going to happen so that's so exciting also at the end of last year we partnered with the pad project which is um an amazing american teacher who made a film about one of these Indian factories and they filmed the fact that the village before the factory arrived and after and the impact of it and she got an Oscar Melissa Burton got an Oscar for this and we've partnered because as a result of their work they're looking for factories to put into places and ours is very simple and does what it says on the tin so we're working with them we're sending them a factory in Kenya and we're also resupplying sending uh, raw materials to resupply the current factory um, I'm also trying to get hold of um, people in high places in Uganda to, to get tax exemptions there, where we've also, with the PAD project, got some other factories going in. We've got two factories wanting to go into Uganda. And for ages, again, same with Zimbabwe, we're trying to get tax exemptions into Zimbabwe so we can send a factory there. But basically, the, the plan from now on is to set up hubs in these countries to set um, to send three factories at a time so that the logistical costs of shipping and, and, and set up are much, much cheaper for everybody. And, and we'll take care of those logistics to enable in-country partners to set up factories more easily without having to deal with those logistics. If someone is listening and they are really like connecting with your work, um, how, how can people support what you do? Um, there's a few things. Um, one of them would be if you have amazing skills that are transferable to a charity, then do get in touch. Um, particularly fundraising. If you have fundraising skills, that'd be cool. Um, the other thing that we set up is called the heart of loving humanity. And the heart is a group of people who give five pounds or more a month and five pounds a month will, uh, which translates as keeping 10 girls in school a month. Um, that is massive um, and that's that's our lifeline at the moment um, and if you're wealthier than that and you want to give us a lovely big present then that's amazing and you can find our details on our website so yeah you can amazing. just join us yeah I think I think what you're doing is is so amazing and what you've said about the cultural perspective around um, menstruation but also reusable versus disposable pads and thinking about what the, these girls and women actually need in the environment they're in is really important because I think that people do get quite simple minded about, okay, it has to be reusable. We, you know, it, we have to think about the environment, but it also has to be practical for these girls and these women. So they don't put themselves in 
in danger trying to just do the best for their menstrual needs. Yeah. And you know what? I'm really passionate about the environment. I mean, it's so sad what we've done collectively. It's so sad. Um, but, but our behavior shouldn't be translated in, in not allowing other people who are a hell of a lot poorer than us to, to have access to the things that they need just to maintain their dignity. I mean, in the slum, the girls cut up their mattresses. That's how they manage their periods. Oh, my um, God. So, you know, it's kind of like, really, are you going to start stamping your feet about some sanitary pads? You know, one of the things that we're... <clears throat> that we're aiming to do when we're more in charge of these projects is to put incinerators in to the schools so that the girls can automatically take care of their own waste. So at least us, our, our bubble of the little world that we're providing pads to will be, will be sustainable in that sense that we won't be adding to more, you know, um, mess everywhere. But yeah, I mean, we're so lucky, you know, we're just so lucky. And, and, you know, going to Kenya was possibly the most upsetting thing I've had to deal with. And the reason we're working there is because an Australian team of people made a film about an Australian woman who was gang raped in Nairobi, a humanitarian aid worker. And instead of going back to Australia, she took her rape, her rape case through the courts and it took her eight years. It was the first rape case that was heard and they changed the rape law as a result. And the filmmakers who made this story... Um, when they were filming, learned about the girls not going to school because of lack of pads. And they were Lois Harris, who funded the project. She was having a meeting with the, with the heads of the villages, the women heads of the villages in the slum. So there were about 20 women in the room. And she said, could you please put up your hand if your first sexual experience was consensual? And one woman put up her hand. You know, we are living, they are living in such a different world. And occasionally I watch films about the, the girls in Kibera being filmed. Um, and they, they talk about, um, you know, we have lots of things to deal with. We have lots of challenges. Oh, my gosh, do they? Mm. You know, rape is a normal thing. I mean, how could you possibly say that? It, it, you know, physical abuse and threat and, you know, trading sex. Perhaps these girls are offered 50p for sex regularly by their peers. Um, you know by boys and you know the, the violence against women is is awful if you become a widow in kenya if you it's completely acceptable that you're gang raped by the rest of the men in the village you know these are these are conversations i've had with women who who go through this and um so we we can't even begin really to understand and and when i came I came home it took me about three weeks to to process really the horrible things I've seen and, and the reality of it. So I, I really wish that women here um, would, would just take a moment to fully acknowledge how lucky um, we are and to, to realise that the shift in the planet and all the environmental changes, everything that we're wanting to see will not happen until we lift the whole of the planet up. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, I might be... I, I, I believe that, you know, I, I don't think I'm crazy. I think that we're not treating each other right. We don't, we're not kind to each other and we don't respect each other and we're not kind to the planet and we don't respect the planet. And when we do look after each other and love each other, we'll, we'll change overnight. If someone's listening to this and they, you want them to take one thing from all of the amazing things you've said, what would you want that to be? 
I would love it for women and men to know that they are unbelievably powerful and that they can be the change that they want to see in the world. Amazing. How can people get in touch with you? Um, my telephone number's on, on our website, which is lovinghumanity.org.uk. Uh, my email address is there. <laughs> uh, if I don't respond, for goodness sake, keep at me. <laughs> I'm best on WhatsApp. So if you, if you take that telephone and put it into WhatsApp, um, you know, I'm really easy to get a hold of. And, um, and if you're studying, you want to talk about it, you want to talk about, you know, poverty, period poverty, anything, I'm really available. And, um, you know, I love what I do. And I love the people who I meet through what I do. You know, I, I, I actually often say to people, I feel a little bit spoiled, like I'm, in a Harry Potter movie and I'm the person in Hogwarts because I go around the world meeting people who are changing the planet and who are showing so much love. And um, so, yeah, you, you can be absolutely the change you want to see in the world. I think Gandhi hit the nail on the head. Be the change in the world you want to see and, and to love each other. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been so amazing to speak to you. I really enjoyed myself. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> For more inspiring conversations, head over to periodstorypod.com where we have so many more for you to peruse. If you want help with your menstrual or hormone health, email me on hello at eatlovemove.com to set up a free 30-minute hormone health review. If you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Tag us, come say hi, and send in your requests for who you'd like to see on the show on Instagram, and twitter on at period story pod or email us at hello at period story pod.com i'm lenise brothers and you've been listening to period story thank you so much for listening